Good morning, church. The passage today is Exodus chapter 9. So turn there with me if you would as I open our time in prayer. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you that you are a holy God, and thank you that you are our hope. We're grateful for that chance to worship you um, and to fix our eyes upon you. Father, we pray that that would continue now as we open your word and as we gaze at this incredible picture of your power that the plagues paints for us, Lord, I pray that we would come away with a great appreciation for who you are, for your holiness, for your transcendence, but also for the miracle that the gospel is. We deserved your wrath and we deserved judgment, and you withheld that because of your son and offered a way of salvation for us. And so, would we behold anew that truth and be encouraged and strengthened by it? So, would you bless this reading of your word and help us as we gaze upon you today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Francis and Edith Schaefer were missionaries in Switzerland during the 60s. And those of you who are in the Sunday school class, How Should We Then Live?, um, know that we're discussing his teaching series, which is by that title. Um, but when they started their ministry, Labrie, in Switzerland, they did so with a series of foundational ministry truths, and one of those is as follows. We will make our financial and material need known to God alone in prayer, rather than sending out pleas for money. We believe that He can put in the minds of people of His choice the share that they should have in our work. And so, Consistent with that, they never sent out requests for fundraising. They merely made their requests known to God and then anticipated Him fulfilling those requests and, and supplying their need. And that meant at times they, they went without. Those who were a part of their ministry in Switzerland remember um, how cold they kept their house. They required that uh, someone actually sit by the fireplace and ration how much firewood they threw on the fire. And so uh, in, in our youth ministry, I don't think that would last very long. You know, it, it's not a, a campfire unless the flames are, you know, six feet up in the air. Um, but they were trying to conserve firewood that way. And, and Edith records that she would have to heat a hot water bottle to warm her fingers so that she could type at night. That's how, that's how cold they kept their facility. Um, <clears throat> but that also gave great opportunities to witness miraculous provision from the Lord. And one of those times was when they were buying the initial chateau where they founded Labrie. And so they were following the Lord. They felt they were calling him to do this. And so as a result, they needed very significant financial um, things. And so as they looked toward purchasing this chateau, they prayed to the Lord and they said, Lord, if you want us to buy this chateau... If this is your place for us and where you want this ministry to be, then supply $1,000 for us tomorrow morning in the mail. Now, if it were me, I'm not sure I'd have quite that much faith. I'd be like, how about next week? $1,000 by next week. But the night before, they said supply $1,000 in the morning. And so when they went to check the mail, guess what was there? There was a letter with $1,000 that said, not just support your ministry, but use this $1,000 to purchase a building to use for ministry to the young adults of the world. Pretty amazing. Well, not just once, but two other times things like this happened in those short weeks as they were preparing to buy this chateau. 
When they had to pay their first promissory note, they needed 8,000 francs in order to pay that first note. When the time came up to pay that note, they had 8,011 francs, exactly the amount they needed. When they had to make their first down payment, they had the exact amount they needed within three francs. So the Lord just kept getting smaller as, <laughs> as they got closer. But all of that paints this picture of a God who can meet our needs, a God who, if we trust in Him, we know that He will supply the needs that we have. And so as we look at our passage this morning, we're going to see the Lord addressing some plagues that deal with the needs of the Egyptians. He affects their finances, their money, and their possessions, and He also affects their health. And so He shows that He is sovereign over both of these things. And so for the Schaefers, we see that in a positive light, where God is sovereign over these things and able to provide for the needs of His people. And here, we see God being sovereign over these things and using them for judgment or removing them from those who He seeks to. But all of that shows us that our hope and our confidence, even as we sang today, does not come in financial markets. It doesn't come in the sum of our bank accounts. It doesn't come in our health and our well-being, but our hope And our confidence comes from the fear of the Lord. We don't secure our own security. We trust the Lord to provide for us and to keep us safe and secure. And so we're going to see that at the end. As we look at the way the Lord deals with material possessions and the way He deals with our health, we come together at the end and see that the hope for those who believe in Him is to fear the Lord and obey His Word. So that's where we're going this morning as we look at these plagues. So pick up with me, if you would, in Exodus chapter 9, and we'll read verses 1 through 7 together. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, let my people go so that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe plague on your livestock, which are in your field, on your horses, on the donkeys, on the camels, and on the herds, and on the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. And the Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died, but not one of the livestock of the sons of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent men, and they learned, Behold, not even one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So we remember as we walk through these plagues, we're seeing them grow in intensity. The early plagues were really just signs of God's power. If you do not repent, this is the type of action I am able to do. This is the type of power I can display. And now today, we see the first of the plagues that actually inflict damage and harm upon the Egyptians. And the first place that the Lord does that is on their livestock. Now, I just want to make a note of clarity. As you read through this passage, you're going to see reference to other animals and livestock throughout the story. Even thinking about Pharaoh pursuing the Israelites toward the Red Sea and using horses and chariots. And so, when it says all of the animals died, it doesn't mean literally all of them. It means all kinds, some of every type, and a significant majority of them were killed, enough to be proof of the miraculous power of our God. 
But it doesn't mean that all of them were killed because we see reference to them throughout the rest of the chapter. So why does God focus on the livestock? Why does he kill all of the livestock of the Egyptians? Well, in the ancient world, livestock was your material possessions. Livestock was how you measured your financial gain. If you had a lot of livestock and a lot of animals, you were a wealthy person, a well-to-do person. And it's clear that Moses has this perspective in mind because of the categories of animals that he lists. Did you notice all of them that he went through? He begins with horses. Well, contrary to, to our culture, horses were not a pleasure animal. They weren't even a working animal. Horses were only owned by royalty, by the king or by nobles, and they were used only for warfare. So when the horses are slaughtered, that means Pharaoh's army is destroyed. It reduces the power of his army to fight or to go to war. And so if you remember throughout the Old Testament, God encourages his people not to put their confidence or their trust into kings or to horses. And that's what he's addressing, the fact that horses were a key part of the military power of these nations. And so all of the horses are killed, showing the irony of, of those sorts of commands. You put your trust in horses or you put your trust in armies, but the Lord is the one who has power over them, and the Lord can kill them and kill all of your military power just like that. So the horses are the first to be killed. Next, he talks about donkeys. So it'll be on the horses and on the donkeys. Now, contrary to the horses, donkeys were the possession of normal, everyday people. They were your regular beast of burden, the domestic animal that you used for your activities. Now, contrary to most kings, the kings of Israel were to ride on donkeys as a symbol of their humility. Um, but for common people, or for most nations, donkeys were their common, everyday animal, what everybody owned. But the thing about donkeys was they were specifically a sign of your material wealth. So, rather than comparing what model of phone you got, or what type of car you had, or the people driving Teslas were the later, or the people driving Teslas today were the ancient people who had lots of donkeys. So, there you go. The next time you see a Tesla driver, say, well, how many donkeys do you have? I have three. Yeah. But that was how you measured your wealth. You didn't measure it in bank accounts or in precious metals. You measured it in donkeys. And so, by afflicting the donkeys, the Lord is afflicting their wealth. He is destroying their material possessions. Camels were the same way. Um, now, if I had to choose between a camel or a donkey, I'm pretty sure I'd take a donkey. Not that I've really worked with either one of them, but I think donkeys would be, would be easier. But camels sort of bridge both categories, where camels were used in warfare, and so they were a part of the army, but they also were the possession of regular people, that they would use them as beasts of burden as well. And once again, the number of camels you had um, was how wealthy you were. Then he describes flocks and herds, which just means an innumerable amount of sheep, goats, and cattle. So this whole description, this whole list that Moses is giving is to paint a picture of the Lord affecting the wealth of Egypt. In one moment, people are well off, they're well-to-do, they have lots of material possessions, their donkeys are well and healthy, and in an instant, the Lord takes it. It's gone, it's dead, and it is no more. And so what's his point with affecting their finances this way? What's his point with affecting their material possessions? Well, his point is to show that your confidence and your strength doesn't reside in how many donkeys you have 
or how many horses your army has. God is more powerful and sovereign over all of those things. God's power and might goes beyond any material possession that we have. And not only that, not only does our confidence not rest in them, but God is sovereign over those things. And you may make all of the right choices and all of the right decisions financially. You may be incredibly wise in your investments, but at the end of the day, the person who grants money, the person who grants material possession is not you, it is God. God is the one who is sovereign over those things. And so the realm of our finances is a realm where we like to feel like we're in control, isn't it? It's an area where we feel like if we make the right decisions, if we invest in the right way, if we use our money wisely and well, then nothing bad will ever happen to us. If I just make all of the right decisions, if I just do all of the wise things, then nothing bad will ever happen to me financially. But what this plague shows us is it doesn't matter how the Egyptians invested. It doesn't matter how wise they were in exchanging donkeys. It doesn't matter any of that because at the end of the day, God is the one who is in charge of their wealth. God is the one who grants it or takes it away. And so, um, we have to be careful that we don't view our finances, we don't view our material possessions with that level of control. And I'm not advocating that we become irresponsible in the way we use our finances or the way we use our material possessions. We are called to be good stewards of what God has given us, and we have to take that call seriously. And so really, what we're talking about is an area of your attitude. On the outside, what you do may look exactly the same, but what is your attitude toward the decisions that you make? Are you making wise choices in order to be faithful with what God has given you, or are you making wise choices thinking that you are powerful enough to secure your own wealth and to secure your own future and to secure your own safety? And the way you tell your attitude towards those things is when you face a hard time, when you come up against a trial, when the Lord removes your wealth or maybe makes it tighter than you had expected, what is your reaction? Is your reaction one of anger and frustration and fear, showing that you're resting in your own strength and your own power? Or in that time of stress and tension, are you able to rest in the God who can provide wealth and take it away in a moment? because that is the God that we serve. So the Lord affects their finances, and the next thing he does is he affects their health. Let's pick up in verse 8 with me, and we'll read through verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln, and Moses shall toss it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. And then it will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt, and it will turn into boils, breaking out with sores on every person and animal through all the land of Egypt. And so they took soot from a kiln, and they stood before Pharaoh, and Moses tossed it toward the sky, and it became boils, breaking out with sores on every person and animal. The soothsayer priests could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the priests as well as all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So again, the Lord works a miracle of transformation. Just like he threw dust into the air and it turned into the gnats, now he throws ash into the air and it turns into a virus. It turns into an infectious disease that when it touches everybody's body, it afflicts them with boils. Now, I want you to pay attention to the description in verse 9. Look there with me. It says, boils breaking out with sores. Now, those three words paint a visceral picture 
of what these were like. The word for boils at the beginning um, is the same word for heat. And so I don't know if you've ever had, you know, a mosquito bite get infected, or you've had anything on your skin get infected, where if you just hold your hand on it, you, f- you can feel the heat just radiating off of that, that bug bite. Maybe I'm the only one who gets infected bug bites here. But you can feel the heat from that sore. And that's the image that's being painted here. These sores were hot with, with ailment and, and in, inflicted pain in that way. And then it says, uh, so there were boils breaking out. And this word for breaking out is the same word that's used for a seed germinating out of the ground. Okay, and so not to be disgusting, but there's these things erupting on your skin. Okay, wow, you're, you all are like tough to this kind of stuff. So, so you have these heat blisters, and now they're erupting all over your skin. And then the last word is the word for sore. And this is the same word that's used to talk about a bubble in wet clay. So now we have these bubbly blisters all over your body. Can you imagine how uncomfortable that would be? How disgusting that would feel? And how miserable that would be if they were all over your body? And so the Lord affects the Egyptians with this physical ailment. Notice that he affects the priests as well, and Moses makes special mention of them, that they can't even stand before him because they're in so much pain and discomfort. And it's fascinating to think that not only could those magicians not cast curses upon the Egyptians, they could not even protect themselves from what the Lord was bringing upon them. Their powers were so impotent that they could not even prevent the the work of the Lord from bringing judgment upon them. They couldn't stop that. So, what's the point of this? Why is the Lord addressing the health of the Egyptians? Well, if you think about these two things together, right, our finances as well as our health, both of these are areas where we think we have control in these areas. We do this with our health the same way we do with our finances. If I eat the right things, if I take care of my body the right way, then I am guaranteed to be healthy, to live a long and happy life. And of course, just like with our finances, we are called to steward our bodies. Our bodies are a temple, and so we are called to treat them well and to seek to bring glory to the Lord with our bodies in everything that we do. But if we begin to think that we are guaranteed our health, or if we begin to think that if we just make the right choices and are wise with how we we eat and what we expose ourselves to, we will prevent any illness or sickness, we've betrayed that we have begun to think we control our health rather than recognizing that this is a realm of God's control. Now, if you think about these two things, Think about this picture of uh, material possessions and finances and, and health. This sounds a lot like Job, doesn't it? Remember in the beginning of Job, Satan destroys Job's material possessions, all of his wealth and accumulated wealth, and then he afflicts him with boils as well and addresses his health. And when both of those things are taken away, what is Job left with? All he is left with is, I know that my Redeemer lives. And so Job is able to have hope, even though these things are taken away, because of his Savior, because of his God. So could you imagine the depression that the Egyptians would feel if they recognized not only that they can't stop these things from happening, but that their gods are impotent to do anything. There is no hope left when your finances and material possessions and your health 
are afflicted. The only hope for us in that moment is our Savior, is our God. Now, following that, Moses provides some interesting commentary from Pharaoh. So we pick up in verses 13 through 17. And then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may serve me. For this time I am going to send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For had I now put out my hand and struck you and your people with plague, you would have then been eliminated from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power, in order to proclaim my name throughout the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. So, this is an extended commentary that Moses gives on his conversation with Pharaoh. And he reveals Pharaoh's heart and his attitude at this point in time as they're discussing things. Notice a couple of things that Moses says. First, he focuses again on the preeminence of God. His power is such that there is no one else like him in all of the world. There is no one like me in all the earth. That's the purpose of these plagues. They show God's incredible, omnipotent power. But did you notice something else? God said he has not yet released the full picture of his power. Now think about what has happened up to this point. Think about the power that God has had on display. Think about the incredible acts that he has done. And yet God says, that's a fraction. That is a fraction of what I can actually do. That is just a small piece of my power and my ability. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a hard time even comprehending what happens in these plagues. I have a hard time picturing what it would be like to see the Nile turn to blood or to see frogs over the entire land of Egypt. And you're telling me that God's power is even greater than what we see in this passage of Scripture. I don't think we can ever appropriately comprehend the omnipotence of our God. I think his power is far beyond even our wildest dreams and greatest imagination. We serve a God who is incredibly powerful beyond anything that we can imagine. And so on display was just a fraction of his power. Now, when I think about this, I I think about when when I was a youth pastor and I would go for a run with the teens. And I try to run every day, usually between four and five miles. And so naturally, when we were on a trip for a missions trip or for camp, um, there would be a group of teens that were training for cross country or track or something like that. And so we would generally run together in the mornings. Now, I would make a great face of trying to keep up with them. I would be running as hard as I could and as fast as I could to just try and keep up with these teens. But then we'd get back to the, to the cabin, and I'd be <gasps> sucking wind and drinking water, and they'd be like, okay, hey, that was a nice warm-up. We're going to go for another lap. And you realize that they're only expending about a fraction of their energy, and they have all of these reserves of energy that they're going to go on and keep running, and, and I've just given everything that I had. And in a sense, that's what God is displaying here. I've thrown all of this stuff at you. And that's only a fraction of what I can really do 
That's only a fraction of my real power and ability. And his point in doing all of this is in verse 16. For this reason I have allowed you to remain in order that I might show my power and in order to proclaim my name. And so we have to ask the question, what is God, what is God trying to show with the plagues? What is his point in spending all of this time showing his wrath and his power and his judgment? Why didn't he spend this time showing us his love? Why didn't he spend this time showing us um, something nice? Why does he show us all of this wrath and judgment and power? The point is, when we view both of those things together, when we view God's power and his wrath and his judgment with his love, that is when we have an accurate description and picture of who our God is. In fact, seeing this description of his judgment and of his power shows us the love that he shows to us through Christ. So seeing God's wrath in, in the plagues should not cause us fear. Well, it should cause us fear in the right way, but it should cause us to be grateful, to recognize what God has saved us from. Because of his work on the cross, we are not subjected to this kind of wrath. We should be. We deserve to be subjected to this kind of wrath. We are sinful enough to deserve that. But God in his mercy and his grace has withheld that judgment. And so we do not experience this kind of wrath. And so there's an incredible picture of God being painted here of holy, powerful, of judgment But seeing that in tandem with his love and his grace for his people is an incredible thing. So, we end with verse 17. Still, or we end this section anyway. We're not done yet. Don't get your hopes up. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. And so, you have to realize the the contradiction that's going on here with Pharaoh. God is displaying this incredible, omnipotent power. Remember from a couple weeks ago, we talked about these signs and wonders being par excellence. There has been nothing like them done in the world since that day. And yet Pharaoh is still able to sit there. And rather than worshiping God, he worships himself. And he exalts himself in that moment. He is witnessing unparalleled power. And his response to that, is to still view himself as sovereign and supreme. So that's exactly what we see going on here, a battle of sovereignty. Who will be supreme and who will you trust in? Is it Pharaoh and his strength, or is it Yahweh and his strength? And it's easy for us to look at Pharaoh and see how pathetic his attempts at clinging to power are and how foolish that must be. And yet we have to pause and recognize that we're tempted to do this in our own lives as well. Even as we've talked thus far about finances and about health, we fall into these same traps as well as we've talked so far. We fall into the trap of thinking that our health is something that we control and that if we just do all of the right things, we'll be healthy, rather than recognizing that God is sovereign over all of our health. We think that if we just invest in the right way, we can secure our future and we can be safe in the coming years. But in reality, God is the only one who guarantees that. And so as we come to this point in this passage, it's, it's easy to feel like we're at a, a fearful place. 
If I can't trust in my wisdom and my ability, if I can't trust in my health, well, what can I trust in? And the beautiful answer that comes back from this passage of Scripture is that we trust in the Lord. We don't trust in our own abilities. We don't trust in our own strengths. We fear the Lord. And when we fear the Lord, we have security. So let's keep reading to see how that resolves. We'll read verses 18 through 26 together. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail, such as has not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. And so now send word, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field to safety. And every person and animal that is found in the field and is not brought home, when the hail comes down on them, will die. Now here's the key. Everyone among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring his servants and his livestock into their houses. But everyone who did not pay regard to the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Now the Lord said to Moses, reach out with your hand toward the sky so that the hail may fall on all the land of Egypt, on every person and animal and on every plant of the field throughout the land of Egypt. So Moses reached out with his staff toward the sky, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire down on the earth. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt, and so there was hail and fire flashing intermittently in the midst of the hail, which was very heavy, such as had not occurred in the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck everything that was in the field throughout all the land of Egypt, from people to animals, and the hail struck every plant of the field and shattered every tree in the field, and only in the land of Goshen where the sons of Israel were, was there no hail. Now, the rest of the chapter, verses 27 and on, we will deal with on Wednesday night. So we'll, um, we'll finish that out in our study on Wednesday night. But as we come here, we see the key is in verse 20. Everyone among the servants of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring his servants and his livestock into their houses. And so we see a very interesting point here, a great illustration Because up to this point, God has protected the land of Israel. He has drawn a division around Goshen and has said, anyone within Goshen who is a part of the nation of Israel, I will protect. But what do we see here? We see people who are protected by faith. People who become a part of Israel by faith. Who believe in the Lord and believe in his word and thus experience the same benefits as Israel has. Well, what does that sound like? That sounds like the new covenant in Christ. That we who are not Israel are now a part of Israel by faith. That we who place our faith and belief in Jesus now receive the same benefits that Israel had. And so it's a picture of salvation by faith. We trust in the word of the Lord. And when we trust in his word, we are saved. Not only that, but as we're thinking about this picture of of finances and of health and, and where our safety and security comes from, our safety and security comes from the fear of the Lord. We fear the Lord and we obey His Word. Did you notice that connection? How do you know if you fear the Lord? How do you know if you have the fear of the Lord in you? You do it by obeying His Word. If you fear the Lord, you will obey His Word. And so that's exactly the picture of of confidence that we have in this passage. In times of fear, in times where we feel insecure, we fear the Lord and we obey His Word and we trust Him to protect us. And so 
our confidence doesn't come from our abilities. Our confidence doesn't come from our strength or our, our good investments or, or our abilities and skills. Our confidence comes from fearing the Lord, obeying His Word, and allowing Him to protect us. As many of you um, may have remembered, this week marks the one-year anniversary since the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. And so as I was thinking about this passage this week, I thought of how applicable an illustration abortion is to this issue. The number one reason why people get abortions in America is finances. They don't believe they have the money or the ability to care for a child, for a baby. And so they make a choice based on financial provision to take the life of a child. Another reason that's often talked about is the health of the mother. And so they make a choice to take the life of a child based on the health of a mother. And so, humbly, what we are suggesting is that in that scenario where you don't know how the money's going to work out and you don't know how the health is going to work out and you don't know how to make this decision, the first thing that you do is you fear the Lord. And you say, this life is holy and is in the image of God and is sacred. And so I fear the Lord and I trust Him to take care of everything else that is going to happen with this. I don't have to worry about the finances. I don't have to worry about the health because our God is a God who controls material possession, and who controls our health. And so the way that I find security and safety is by fearing the Lord and by obeying Him. And in that obedience, there is protection, safety, and security. So that's a great reminder for us this morning. Would you join me in prayer as we close? Father, thank you so much for this passage. And Lord, I do thank you for your power. Thank you for this incredible display of your might And Lord, as we come away from this, help us to not minimize what you have displayed here. Would we be overwhelmed with your omnipotence and and help us to not, um, help us to be okay with not even being able to grasp how powerful and omnipotent you are. And Lord, would that translate into our lives into a fear of you, a reverence for who you are that is followed by obedience to your word. Help us to find um, the, the ability and the will to obey you and to recognize you for who you are. So we thank you again for this time and for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.